0: That we would be responsive to the Lord's guidance as we reach out to the lost sheep of the house of Israel in the greater Los Angeles area. Thank you, and I hope you enjoyed this message. But I wanted to get to this point because this is about the midway point of the life of, Yeshu- of the life of David and the life, the end of the life of Saul. Now it's very fascinating to think that in chapter thirty-one we're going to read about the death of Saul. And it made me think, what would we want written on our epitaphs when it is time for us to die? For all of us will die. Saul dies here. David will die in the next book, or the book after that. But we're all going to face the reality of our deaths. So I was looking on the internet to see what some people had on their tombstones. Did you ever look at things like that? I remember when up in New England, you can go into some very old graveyards and you can read some very interesting kinds of uh, statements that are put on people's tombstones. So I just went on the internet to see what some have written. And you may have heard some of these, maybe you didn't, I haven't. But uh, one said, died from not forwarding that text message to 10 people. I didn't think that really happened, you know. By the way, uh, you remember Mel Blanc, the, the man of like thousands of voices? You, you know, he was the, um, the voice for Bugs Bunny and I guess Daffy Duck and Elmer Fudd. You know what's on his tombstone? That's all folks. Yeah, I can see you're not, you're not into this. Okay. Right. This woman, Isabel, so just so you know, this is real. I didn't make them up. I'm not that creative anyway. But Isabel H. Kenniston, she had on her tombstone, I'd rather be at the mall. I suppose there's some truth to that. Here's another one. Said... Uh, I was hoping for a pyramid. You just have to have a little thing. It doesn't have to be big. Here's another one. I made some good deals. I made some bad ones. I really went in the hole with this one. Somebody else had on their tombstone, I told you I was sick you got to appreciate people with a sense of humor at, you know, these moments. Some are not so happy. Here's one by Herman Harband, 1918. My wife, Eleanor, author of Queens, New York, lived like a princess for 20 years, traveling the world with the best of everything. When I went blind, she tried to poison me, took all my money, All my medication left me in the dark, alone and sick. It's a miracle I escaped. I won't see her in heaven because she's surely going to hell. (laughs) But, you know, Spurgeon wrote about statements like this. He said, a good character is the best tombstone. Those who love you and were helped by you Will remember you when forget-me-nots have withered. Carve your name on hearts, not on marble. Well, that's a uh, good—that's good advice, don't you think? Now, the reason I think about this is because Saul gives us the epitaph that he would have put on his own tomb. You find this in chapter twenty-six. You remember, this was a moment when Saul was pursuing David, and David was on the run. And David, for the second time, spares Saul's life. And in chapter 26, Saul says, Then Saul said to David, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will no more do you harm because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Behold, I have acted foolishly and have made a great mistake. See, I think that's what would go on Saul's tomb. I have acted foolishly. In fact, I think it's in the King James Version, it says, I have played the fool. What's interesting about this is this is not the first time Saul was spoken of as being foolish. If you turn back in your Bibles, I'm going to say around chapter chapter <laughs> Chapter 15, or is it 14? Let me see now. Chapter 13: When Saul was told to wait. For Samuel to come to offer the sacrifice, Saul became impatient. And so as a Benjaminite, not a Levite, he had acted, um, what would I I say? He, He acted more quickly than he ought to have, and he offered the sacrifice. He lacked patience. And so Saul, Samuel, when he finally comes, he says, Samuel said, looking at verse 10, What have you done? And Saul said, When I saw that the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered at Micmash." I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. So at the front end of of Saul's life, he's characterized as one who played the fool. At the end of his life, he himself admits that he had Played the fool. What does it mean to act foolishly and to play the fool, as it were? Well, the scripture says, The fool has said in his heart, There is no God. And if there's anything that characterized Saul's life, it was that he acted as if there was no God. That's not to say Saul's entire life was horrific. In fact, there are moments in Saul's life in which he acts quite honorably and quite wonderfully. You remember that when he was chosen to be king, his first response was one of great humility. He hid himself among the luggage, you might say, of everyone who had gathered in order for Samuel to anoint the next or the first king of Israel. But Saul was a very humble man. And so he hid himself. He didn't want to be put on display. He didn't want to be acknowledged. And he was rather reticent to assume this responsibility. I think that's something that is admirable about Saul at that stage of his life. And it's very soon after that that he will deliver his people from the Philistines. And then it will be soon after that that when the Philistines are attacking the men at Jabesh Gilead, and they surround this village that's on the other side of the Jordan River, and they threaten this village of Jewish people, those inside the village, those of the members of the household of Israel, send messengers to the Philistines and to the Canaanites, or I guess it's the Ammonites, the Ammonites who have attacked them. And they said, we will become your servants. We will submit ourselves to you because we see that we have no capability of defending ourselves against you. And the leader of the Ammonites say to the Jewish people in this village of Jabesh Gilead, I will accept your surrender only on the condition that all of your men put out their right eyes. So the men of Jabesh-Gilead, they want to have some time to think about this. And while they're given time to think about this, they send messengers to Saul to tell him what is afoot. And Saul musters the armies of Israel, attacks the Ammonites, and rescues them from their enemies. These are good things that Saul has attained. has accomplished and even later when he's pursuing David and message comes to him that the Philistines are attacking he leaves the pursuit of David he goes after the Philistines and again he defends the people and he's victorious and so it's no wonder that the people would sing Saul has killed his thousands he has killed many in the name of his people And he has defended them. So his whole life is not exactly a failure. But what characterized his life was an act of folly. Because so often, too often, more often than not, he acted as if God did not exist and that God did not matter. How did he do this? Well, in one instance, you'll remember in the early life of Saul, we just read about it, Samuel told Saul to wait for him before going into battle. But he acted foolishly, and so he offered the sacrifice when it was not for him to offer it. He did not submit himself to God. He did not submit himself to Samuel, but rather he acted on his own initiative, and thus he acted inappropriately. That's not the first time. There's a second time when Samuel had told Saul that you are to kill all the Amalekites, the men, women, children, animals. Why? Because when the Israelites came out of Egypt, the first people to attack the Israelites were the Amalekites. And you remember that as long as Moses had his hands raised, Joshua leading the troops in the valley were successful, And when his arms would fall Then the turn of battle would turn against Joshua And so Aaron and Hur came alongside Held up his arms And they were able to be victorious And God said at the end of that battle I will wage war against the Amalekites From generation to generation Until they are no more And now Saul had the great opportunity to fulfill God's promise in his behalf. And Samuel told him to slay every Amalekite. But Samuel did not. And, or I should say Saul did not. And when Samuel came to Saul once again, he said to him, you have acted rashly and you have not been obedient. He said, for disobedience is as the sin of witchcraft. And therefore, Saul acted foolishly once again, thinking that he could act without the knowledge or without being aware of God's involvement in his life and in the affairs of his life. But that's not the only way he acted foolishly. He also sought to murder an innocent man, he sought to kill David, not on only one occasion. And not only on two occasions, but on at least three occasions, he premeditatively planned to murder David. He threw a spear twice at David, but missed him. He pursued him once and then twice and sought to kill him. He acted foolishly, thinking God was not aware of what he was doing. But it wasn't just in his rebelliousness against Samuel and his rebelliousness against God and his attempt to murder David. But you'll remember also that Saul had sought out knowledge and information by going to a witch at Endor. Think about how he acted without thinking God was involved. He knew what the law had said about such individuals and such behaviors. And in fact, when he goes to the witch of Endor, she even tells him, look, Saul has put out all the necromancers and all those that would seek knowledge through the dead. And you're asking me to do this? Well, he disguised himself so she would not know who it was that was asking. He even acted contrary. The commands of God, not just with respect to the moral rights, not taking someone else's life, but he even violated his own conscience and his own commands and therefore acted like a fool. And so we learn some great things here because when we look at Saul's life and we see this broader picture in this. Broader strokes of his life We say he acted as one Who wasn't aware of God's presence with him He knew God was there But he acted as if he was not present And not only did he live foolishly But he died tragically If you look at chapter 31 Which is where I had asked you to turn initially You'll see that in chapter 31 It says now the Philistines Were fighting against Israel And the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. This is all very fascinating. You will remember that David had run to the Philistines and he had settled in Gath and he had submitted himself to Achish, the king of the Philistines, and Achish had given him the village of Ziglag. And he was living now in Philistine territory. And when Achish marshaled his troops north into the Jezreel Valley, he's going very far north now. Remember, the Philistines are located in what is today the Gaza Strip. And the Jezreel Valley is all the way north by the Sea of Galilee. And so he has moved his troops, Achish, all the way up the coast along the Mediterranean. And then he's gone inland through Mount Carmel and he's come into the Jezreel Valley. And David had accompanied him along the way. David was in a very awkward position because he knew Achish was going to attack Saul and his men. And David certainly didn't want to fight against his own people. But he had to accompany Achish in order to keep up the ruse that he was no longer faithful to Saul. Fortunately, and by the sovereign hand of God, the other leaders, they're referred to as lords in the scripture, but they are generals and captains of the Philistine army. They go to Achish, the king, and they say, we don't want David here with us. And so Achish says to David, you can't come into battle with us. My leaders, my military leaders do not trust you. And so David, fortunately, is able to leave the battle and not be caught up in perhaps attacking his own people. So David has now left the battle, and now we read in chapter 31 how the Philistines have come into the Jezreel Valley. And one of the entrances into the Jezreel Valley comes between the uh, the valleys that are created by Mount Gilboa and um, And you have the hill of Moray up in the northern area. You've got Nazareth that's up on a hill. And all of these hills provide valley entrances into this greater 20-mile valley known as the Valley of Jezreel. The Philistines have entered into this valley. And you see what it says here, that the the Jewish people, the men of Israel are on Mount Gilboa and the Philistines have been victorious. It says that many of the men of Israel have fallen slain. And look what it says in verse 2. And the Philistines overtook Saul. And not just Saul, but also his three sons, Jonathan and Abinadab and Melchishua. And the battle pressed hard against Saul and the archers found him. And he was badly wounded by the archers. Here's one battle. The only battle we read of that Saul ever lost. He was victorious. It would appear in all his other battles, but not this one. And as the archers shoot their arrows, it makes its mark and it nails Saul and gives him a lethal weapon or a lethal wound. And as a result... Saul is going to die. His sons have already been killed. And then Saul says to his armor bearer, draw your sword, thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Now isn't this amazing as well? What strikes me here As I've been reflecting on this and thinking this through, what strikes me here, what would you have done if you were that one in battle and you knew that this arrow had made its mark and your life was flowing out of your body? You knew it was over. What would you be thinking about? What would you be doing? You know, it's hard to say until you're in those circumstances, but as I kind of reflect from a distance... The last thing I think, I think I would be caring about is what my enemies were going to do to my body. I think the last thing I'd be thinking about is, what am I going to look like when I'm dead to these guys? You know, how are they going to treat my body? You know, I could care less. But that's what Saul is thinking about. And it's sort of characteristic of Saul. He's concerned with his external appearances. Before others, rather than the internal condition of his heart. He's concerned when people sing, I've, Saul's killed his thousands, but David is ten thousands. He's concerned about what people think of him. Even at the point of his death, I don't want them to mistreat my body. What I would hope I might be doing is landing on my knees and saying, thank you, Lord, for the life I was able to live, the courage I was able to exhibit, and I'm now coming to meet you like the thief on the cross. Remember me when you enter into your Father's kingdom. I would hope I would be saying, Lord, I'm coming home I'm looking forward to seeing you as you are. I'm looking forward to be welcomed, but that's not what Saul is thinking about at all. There's no prayer on his his lips whatsoever. He's only concerned that he not be mistreated by his enemies. He had a foolish life, and it would appear to be a tragic death. So the armor bearer, of course, is not going to kill the king of Israel. And so what does Saul do? He takes his own sword and he falls upon it. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. It's again one of those illustrations that none of us lives to ourselves. You know, none of us is uh, an island. What we do, what we say, how we behave impacts the lives of others eventually. Eventually. And here, this self-taking of one's life in this instance had the impact of the armor-bearer taking his life. Something to think about. But then look at this. And, when his, uh, and thus Saul died, and his three sons, and his armor-bearer, and all his men on the same day together. This is tragic. And this is sad And when the men of Israel Who are on the other side of the valley See the people of Israel The armies have fled Remember they are up in the Jezreel area They fled all the way down To the Jordan Valley And they've crossed the Jordan River They are on the run And they do not want to be overtaken by the Philistines. And so it says, when the men of Israel who are on the other side of the valley and those beyond the Jordan River saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled. Look at this. And the Philistines, they're not only victorious on the battlefield, they actually take up residence in the homes of the Jewish people. They take up residence in the villages and the cities that the Israelites possessed. They lost their territory. And the enemy is now living on hallowed or hallowed soil. And so when you look at verse 8, the next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain, it gets even worse. They found Saul and his sons on Mount Gilboa. So they cut off his head. Stripped off his armor, sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. They put his armor in the temple of Ashtaroth and they fastened his body to the wall of beth And so now they are mistreating his body and they've severed his head and they're passing his head throughout the cities of the Philistines celebrating that the king of Israel has died. And then they're taking his body and they're fastening it to the walls in Beth Sha'an as a sign and symbol, don't mess with us. And they're going among the dead and they're stripping them of the armor and the weaponry because they don't want the Israelites to come back and to regain the weapons that they might use against them. So that's a typical thing that was done in the ancient world. And not even the ancient world, but even in in modern warfare. Don't let the enemy take back the weapons that they lost on the field of battle. And then there's this bright moment, and I love the way this closes Because it says, But the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul. All the valiant men arose, went all night, took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan. They came to Jabesh and buried them there. And they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh, and they fasted seven days. Isn't this wonderful? The men of Jabesh-Gilead, remember, they were the ones that Saul had rescued when the Ammonites told them they wanted them to take out their right eye in order for them to accept their surrender. And now the men of Jabesh Gilead, they said, okay, Saul may have his faults, but he did something in our behalf and we're going to do something in his behalf. And they went and they rescued his body and his son's body. They gave them an appropriate burial and then they mourned over him for seven days and their sons. I think that is to their credit, given their courage And their respect for a man who has done some great thing for them. What a great bestowing of honor and expression of appreciation from the city for this man and his sons. Well, as I said, you know, Saul lived a foolish life. And he experienced a tragic death. And so how is it that we could avoid the pitfalls of of Saul? And the key to this whole thing is being sensitive to God. It's realizing that we do not live as one that believes there is no God. But we live as one that recognizes there is a God. And he has a claim on our lives. And as such, we are to obey him and to follow him. As tragic and as, fool, as tragic a death and as foolish a life, I can't help, nevertheless, to see a parallel between, our, between Saul and our Messiah. Certainly, they both were kings. One was, of course, a much better king than the other, but Messiah is a much better king than any king that has ever lived or served or reigned in Israel. But I also think of this. When Saul died... It was as if hope was lost. Israel had no king. There was no descendant of Saul. Who's going to rise to sit on the throne? It's as if there's no hope. And what about this David? If we even remember him, because he's on the road. It's been years. He's been on the run. It's been years. And he was on the run in Philistia. Is he still the man God has for? Israel, and just like when Messiah died, in one sense, his death was a tragic death, would you not say? It was a horrific death, perhaps the most severe death of deaths. And in his death, it appeared as if all hope was lost. And in the death of Saul, it appeared as if all hope. Was lost, But then you have this moment of rescue of the bodies. I couldn't help but think that though it looked like all hope was lost for Israel and Israel's kingdom, there was this little shoot of people from Jabesh Gilead, somewhere outside where we don't even think about Jabesh Gilead. That's on the other side of the Jordan. If it said men of Judah, oh, that would ring heartily to us. If it said the men of Benjamin... Saul was a descendant of Benjamin. We would say, oh, that rings true. But Jabesh, who were they? And it sort of reflects for me, or it sort of indicates to me, just as it looked like all hope was lost, there was a glimmer of hope that there is yet something to come in the future because of these individuals that would rescue the bodies of Saul and his sons. And I can't help but think of the resurrection of our Messiah, who rose from the dead. And even in his resurrection, initially it was not perceived for its significance. Because you remember those on the road to Emmaus, they're talking with Messiah. They don't even realize it's him. And they say, yeah, he was supposed to ra- rise from the dead on the third day, but as to what's going on with him, we have no knowledge. It's as if the resurrection, even of itself, was missed initially by those that experienced it closer. Think of a man like Thomas, who is told by all of the other disciples that he really has risen again. And Thomas says, listen, unless I put my hands in his scars, I'm not believing. There was still this reticence, this loss of hope. And like that, that's what we see at the end of 1 Samuel. There seems to be a loss of hope, but yet there's a small ray of light. And that small ray of light at the end of Saul's life all of a sudden just illuminates in the next couple of chapters when David comes to the fore, is anointed again as king in Hebron and then for the third and last time in Jerusalem. And it's there that David takes the throne And now the dynasty is set, the lineage for Messiah is now protected, and the lineage of Messiah is now firmly rooted and established, and we look for that one who would be the son of David. Remember, Saul was seeking to kill David. Had he been successful? There would have been some kind of problem. I don't know what and how it would have been resolved. But there would have been a problem with the messianic lineage. And while Saul may have not been aware, it would appear to me that he was the instrument of the evil one, perhaps in ancient Israel's history, to circumvent Messiah's coming, even at that point in Israel's history. And that ray of hope that seemed to have vanished, the thought that maybe the evil one was victorious after all, turns out that the very thing that he thought, if he did think such a thing, would bring about his own victory was the means by which would bring about his own demise. And so at the end of Saul's life, we have this, these rays of hope that give birth to this bright light of the kingdom of David, the, fa- the founding or the the establishing of the messianic line and the hope of Israel brightens up once again. Whatever is going on in our lives, how foolishly we might act in addition to perhaps moments of true devotion to God, as Saul showed. Ultimately, we need to have our eyes on him. This morning we celebrated the Lord's Supper and what Messiah has done for us. We need to keep our eyes on him, keep our eyes on his redemptive work, and we need to follow him. When we do, we will not have on our epitaphs, You know, I have played the fool or I've acted foolishly for we would be ones who have acted obediently in following Messiah and serving him. So let's pray. And as I pray, if the musicians could come on up and we'll be ready to sing before before the Lord. Father, we thank you for your word to us this day. We look at a man like Saul, and there's much to be critical of, but we must remember that when the Apostle Paul came on the scene of history, he too made reference to Saul in a positive way. When speaking of his own Jewish lineage, he said he was a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee of Pharisees, of the tribe of Benjamin the tribe from which the first king of Israel had come. And while our first king may not have been everything we needed or desired, and perhaps that first king did not live as faithfully as he ought, and though he did by his own admission act foolishly, nevertheless, Lord, there are some around him that acted with grace, with courage, and with spiritual sight. And so, Father, we would pray that we might be like that. May we be ones who do not play the fool, but act responsibly to your light, as dim as it may appear at times or as bright as it might shine. And we would once again, Lord, lift up the name of Messiah, the Son of David, who alone can bring hope to his people, can alone bring hope to us, and to bring light and life. And during this season, in which we celebrate the light of the world coming into the world, we pray, Lord, that he would shine brightly in our hearts and through our lives that others may be drawn to him and thereby give you all praise. Help us to let our lights so shine that men would see the light and glorify their heavenly father. For it's in Messiah's name we pray. Thank you for listening to our message. We hope that it serves to encourage you in your walk with the Lord and your service to Him. Do remember us in your prayers, and if you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, with a large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at BethAriel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L.org.